Hello, and welcome to the Plus One podcast, where we discuss diversity and inclusion in our workplaces at the University of Melbourne. I'm your host, Medo Purnada, Senior Lecturer in Management and Marketing at the Faculty of Business and Economics, University of Melbourne. In this episode, we host Tegan Donnelly, Head of Innovation at Melbourne Business School. I talked to Tegan about her involvement at Melbourne Business School's Innovation Lab, the 100% project, and overall her thoughts about rethinking organizations from the perspective of diversity and inclusion. This episode was recorded on the land of the Wurundjeri, Wurundjeri and Wunurong peoples. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Hello, Tegan. How are you? I'm good, Meadow. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. How are you dealing with the cold these days? I do not love the cold. I'm definitely looking forward to a bit of a break in the summer over in um, Europe in a couple of weeks. But um, yeah, the cold is not my favourite time of year. <laughs> so you're going to Europe. That's exciting. Yes, very exciting. London and Spain, very, very exciting um, and very much needed at the moment. Oh, that's so awesome. Is it work-related, if you you don't mind me asking? It's not. It's, uh, I've just got engaged, so it is a bit of an engagement party, which is very exciting with some of my partner's um, family that's over there. Oh, my God. Congratulations. Thank you. (laughs) So, um, Tegan, can you please let me and the audience know about your background, um, which institution at uni you're working in, and uh, a bit of what you do? Where to start? So, uh, I'm the innovation manager at MBS AND, which is the new Melbourne Business School Innovation Lab, which is focused on redefining the future of learning and work, really. Um, Partnering with organisations, industry bodies, subject matter experts, um, and one space that we're really focused on is inclusivity, accessibility, um, and diversity of learning and development opportunities. Um, The other hat I wear is I'm a volunteer researcher at the 100% Project, which is a not-for-profit organisation focused on gender equity in leadership uh, specifically. And um, I'm also an organisational psychology master's student finishing up sort of hopefully by the end of this year. So lots of hats, um, but all underpinning them is sort of a passion and curiosity for diversity, equity and inclusion. Yeah, that's amazing. Uh, yeah, I could imagine that you're a busy person. So <laughs> so one by one, the innovation lab, what's that about? What do you guys do specifically that is related to DNI and how is it relevant to um, overall what we're doing at uni for DNI and what's the impact? Yeah, great question, Meadow. Um, where to start? So we have six opportunity spaces that have been market validated with organisations um, that we work with as clients in the professional services arm of Melbourne Business School. And one of them is inclusive and equitable learning and development. And when I say that, think about the question of how do we help organisations make learning accessible and equitable? And it's really centred around not just this space, but more broadly for learning and work in organisations. There's a hugely untapped population of disability, of neurodiversity that organisations just aren't set up for yet to access and leverage the great skills and capability that can come with that workforce. When we think about from a learning and work perspective, what we're trying to unpack is 
rather than putting diversity, equity, inclusion in as a topic for training and development, which is sort of a siloed approach, taking more of a systems lens to that and actually thinking about how do you design work models, learning products, services right from the outset with design principles that are centred around diversity, equity, and inclusion to make sure that we are serving not just the standard population, but underserved, undereducated, um, marginalised communities, um, those that are culturally different, and they feel that they're supported, enabled in their career development, growth and capability as well. That's pretty interesting. So if I understood it correctly, um, you facilitate the industry placement of disadvantaged or minority groups in the working space. Is that correct? Is that the, the right way of doing that? Or are you working more with corporate side and facilitating um, facilitating the recruitment or the industry placement of disadvantaged groups? Um, how how does it work? Where, which side are you more um, working with and f- um, and focused on right now? I would think of the lab as a conduit um, that interfaces with business to solve for some of these problems. So we're not saying that we're the experts or have all the answers or that we can place people with disabilities or that are neurodiverse or culturally different into environments organizations on placements but what we are saying is we're working with organizations to help solve for some of the challenges that are preventing or creating inequitability across some of these groups oh that sounds cool and um so can you tell me how long you have been doing this and some examples some success stories that you could share with myself and the audience? We are at the start of our growth journey. It's a very new innovation lab. So we kicked off at the start of this year. Our strategy was set at the end of 2022. And so we're we're kicking off our incubator program, which is focused on discovery around some of these problem statements, um, not in the inclusivity accessibility space at this stage, but program two later in the year, hopefully we'll draw on some of those problem statements. Um, so I guess the answer is success cases yet not so much, um, And but I'm happy to share as we go along with the podcast community um, any stories that we come up with or success cases or failures because it's also important to remember that innovation is about experimenting and learning where it doesn't work as well. No, that would be really good. And um, yeah, I'm pretty sure we look forward to having you again to let us know about how you're going as you're implementing the project. One thing I'm curious about is that what kind of innovation, though? I mean, what tools if um, or approaches or strategies are you guys using, if it's not confidential, yeah, um, no. yeah, in, in, in this project? Yeah, it's, it's a large question. There's a lot. Um, To simplify it down, we're using human-centred design uh, philosophy and design thinking approaches to take people through discovery, customer research, um, ideation, solutioning, and then to a high-fidelity prototype that we will eventually partner with an organisation to sort of build out into a product, service, experience. It could be anything, a new business model, a new work framework, Um, we're not limiting ourselves to technology or applications and we think there's a broader play and we need to be open-minded about what actually comes out of it and that will be based on the experts that we bring into the room. That's great. Um, I'm going to ask a bit more question about that. So imagine I'm 
Um, I mean, I wish. I re- I'm a CEO <laughs> of this big company and I'm interested yeah. um, in the project. And uh, I'll come to Melbourne Business School and I sit down and, and to, the, to the Innovation Lab and I sit down and um, have a chat with you guys. And I am interested to see how I can better um, have access to this whole pool of uh, people that I haven't yet so much considered for recruitment. Mm. Um, how should I go about it with your help? What are some steps that are taken? There are definitely programs we can run with organizations to take them through a bespoke incubator program like we're running in May for their organization challenges around diversity, equity and inclusion. Um, and that would look like coming on a 12-week journey with us, going through rich customer research with those groups of people that they're trying to access to understand their needs and develop almost personas around who the customers are that we're targeting or, or employees in this case, uh, what their challenges are, what needs they have from a workforce perspective before that they be able to kind of implement or take part in an organisation like the one that would be coming to us to solve for these challenges. So in our perspective, it'd be coming up with a solution with that organisation to work on their bespoke challenges rather than putting a generalist program together. Absolutely. And have you had already interest from the industry, if you don't mind me asking, or I I understand that uh, the MBA students at Melbourne Business School um, are mostly managers or at managerial levels, if I'm not mistaken. And um, how about the students? Are they active in the innovation lab or have there been communications? Absolutely. So we put out an EOI for the incubator program about a month and a half ago, and we had really great uh, rapid interest, which was fantastic. I think on the list, we've got over 15 students at MBS, so current students, and we had great support from the Student Advisory Council and Kwong Hyu Lim, the innovation uh, lecturer at Melbourne Business School as part of the MBA subject. And we also have got a large group of alumni students that are participating as well. But beyond that, we have a range of industry professionals that maybe haven't even studied with Melbourne Business School or Melbourne University uh, that have different levels of education, different le- cultural backgrounds, different roles in different organisations to try and give us as diverse of a population as possible. So from a numbers perspective, we've got about 100, 150 individual learners that are really curious about this program and the challenges we're taking into the program. And I think we've got about 15 to 20 organisations that have signed up to put their logo next to the program um, and be an organisational industry contributor to the success of the outcomes. That's great. I'm curious. So are you guys open to have more organisations on board and what is the channel that you communicate with industry uh, for the Innovation Lab to to let them know what amazing work you guys are doing and uh, to have to have more involved or how have the current organizations and and um, industry professionals uh, known about about this? Has it been word of mouth? Is there a website? We have a website currently being launched, which is really exciting, especially for the sub-brand of MBS And. And we've also been reaching out via LinkedIn and just social platforms. I think our approach at the moment as we grow and as we scale, we're a bit of a startup culture at the moment. So it's reaching out to our contacts, our networks, going to events and sourcing interested parties. But if someone is interested in getting involved in this particular program or a bespoke program for their organisation, they can reach out on the website or 
to either myself or Alan Sullivan, the director of the MBS and Innovation Lab. Oh, that's great. And what about the Broder University? Are there plans in the future that um, uh, this this program is extended to the Broder University or what are what are the impacts do you think that it would have on the university community? It depends on which lens we talk through. So diversity, equity, inclusion, that's yet to be explored as to the impact. But if we think more broadly about the university sector or education sector, I think there's large impacts. So this program's working with industry to solve skill gaps, um, help identify career pathways, learning cultures, and the disconnect at the moment or the accord that's going on is really talking about do we need an entire reform of education and how formal accreditation is played out. And so hopefully we'll be able to feed that back through to the university to talk about this is actually what we're seeing. These are the products and services that our clientele are saying that they need. These are the skills. How do we actually shape our education to support that? Oh, that's really amazing. I would love to see how that will play out and the insights that's coming from the program. So absolutely exciting. Does the program also cover the the issues, if any, uh, with respect to LGBTQI recruitment, transgender recruitment? Um, I have noticed that there has been some discourse going on around university um, about the transgender issues. So are there any implications for the LGBTQI plus community for the program? It's a good question. I think they're definitely a group that needs to be focused on. Um, they're one of the marginalised communities, I would say, underrepresented. Um, and so in, in a program where we would look at that sort of thing or those sorts of groups, absolutely, there would be implications and hopefully positive implications for those groups. What they are, I can't say because we haven't gone through that discovery process. And I know that sounds really vague and ambiguous, but in true designer mindset and fashion, we need the customer research data to identify what the needs are before we actually move forward with any solutions. Otherwise, we're just adding things to an already oversaturated um, product and service perspective or landscape and um, be causing more trouble than what it would be providing benefit. Yeah, I could imagine. And and that insight from those communities, as you mentioned, is um, like either LGBTQI plus or disability gr- disabled groups or any other groups that are marginalized. Uh, the insight from them would be really interesting. And uh, um, I understand that you focus, your group focuses on um, on the industry side, but also from those groups. I'm I'm curious to know how uh, you you get feedback, you get insights. Can you let us know how you do it? The individual learner perspective that we talked about before as one of the groups we're targeting, that's where we have about 100 odd people interested. Um, and that group should be as diverse as possible. So they should come from all backgrounds, all cultures, all sexual orientations, um, everything, neurodiversity, marginalised communities. We want as diverse of a population as possible because our principle is through our design methodology and innovation methodology, it should be just and rigorous. And by just, we mean it needs to be inclusive of all of the needs. And one of the big bugbears I have with um, products and services that are often created, and I'll give an example in a moment, is that they're often designed for a target audience, which is fine because you can't 
provide access for everybody to every piece or product or service that you develop. However, I think there are fundamental flaws in not including a design principle or a few questions right up front or customer research from those different groups to identify small tweaks to a platform or technology or service that could be made to help them access it as well. And the example I'll give is virtual reality technology. It is designed actually on a male uh, eye width and and face shape. Oh, and so not female. <laughs> not female. No, surprising. Um, and so what that means is women and and other cultures of Asian descent actually experience more motion sickness. Now, when we think about the implication of virtual reality technology on the future of work, it is huge. And so if organisations that are developing these products don't actually start to think about how they resolve for some of these issues or start designing with inclusivity in mind right up front, the business imperative is you limit access to an already shortage of talent and an already war on talent marketplace. You limit access to half of your population, if not more. I know. Yeah, that's that's a real issue. And that got me... Um thinking about this whole new wave of AI out there with ChatGPT, which is the most well-known one, if I'm not mistaken, but there are thousands of others and they're growing exponentially. And one issue surrounding that is AI ethics and the databases that AI uses to learn. And those databases are to, might be to some extent biased, right? Um, that also can have some implications. So for recruitment, I have heard, I'm not sure, please uh, correct me if I'm wrong, that um, for large organizations, when they want to assess the CVs of the applicants, they use AI algorithms some, sometimes, and there are some criteria that are defined for those algorithms to filter filter out the applicants. And... Uh, I'm thinking, what if the machine learning or the learning algorithms of that AI are biased? It is not inclusive. What's going to happen to the ones, uh, to the applicants that are already marginalized? And so what are your thoughts on that? Have you had anything about those algorithms or how they work? Or I did do a stint in, in graduate recruitment, and I do remember that there is... AI that does pick up on certain, the typical star techniques, so certain questions that they're asking that they want the language to be reflected in in the responses or in the, in the resume. Um, you then have the added layer, as you're saying, of the bias of the individual reviewing the, the CVs or resumes. And <clears throat> there's a lot of technology out there trying to mitigate that bias by you know, in a in an interview, blurring the screen so that you can't really see who it is, or changing the voice so you don't really you can't really tell um, whether it's a man or a woman or someone of ethnic descent. You, it's quite fascinating. I don't think there's a one solution. I know there's a lot of products out there trying to overcome the bias in recruitment and selection in particular. Um, but I I do think it comes back down to organisations regulating and monitoring. Uh, not only the targets and quotas that they've got for different populations, but also the bias that's inherent in each individual from their life circumstance as they grow up through the interactions with family, social groups that they have, um, making sure that they're aware of them. We're not going to be able to remove them entirely, 
but we can monitor them and mitigate for them. And so I, I think, yes, AI is part of that. I think there is a lot of ethical questions around AI. I think it will only get better with experience. As we know, machine learning learns and grows. Um, but right now, I would be cautious. What is the long-term plan for the Innovation Lab? Are there specific milestones that you're looking forward to achieve? Are there any specific um, goals that you would like to uh, achieve sooner than later? And also, let us know how others can get involved and help you guys out. We're building our ecosystem. So I'll start with how people can get involved because I think that's the most exciting part. Um, I feel very privileged to be a part of such a team that's working on such large social issues. And I think the way to get involved is contact us. Um, we'll have a conversation. We'll work out where we think your skill set lies in terms of the ecosystem and the types of roles that we have available. It may not be immediate impact or immediate support, but there's definitely a lot of vehicles and products that are coming out across the, the year as our strategy unfolds and next um, as we gear up into delivering accelerator programs or venture builds. So lots of exciting things to come. I think the best place to start is to get in touch and have a conversation. Sure. And um, we'll put your um, contact details in uh, the thumbnail of the podcast, just in case. Um, if uh, our audience were keen to, to get in touch um, and uh, see how they can get involved. Um, one other project that you mentioned was G100 or 100%, is that correct? Yeah, the 100% project, yeah. Can you tell us about what it is and um, what is happening in that project and what has been your role involved in that project? The 100% project is an amazing, again, another amazing not-for-profit organisation, but their specific focus is on achieving gender equity and leadership positions right across Australia. There are an amazing group of volunteers um, there's no payment for the work that they do and they do some incredible research uh, that really tackles really big challenges. Um, there are papers coming out at the moment around many different gender equity issues. Um, one is of loss and around the loss that's experienced for men actually when we talk about gender equity in leadership positions. And so sort of flipping the dialogue to say it's an adaptive change or a change model, which sort of speaks to two sides of the coin. In order to create change and create momentum around change, you need to address the loss that's occurred in the current status quo. So when you say loss, um, what does it mean? So it doesn't mean that um, men that couldn't go up the hierarchy um, of the organization in leadership or overall in their work engagements and they have been... Um, there have been some. There have been disadvantaged against. Can you elaborate on that a bit? To be clear, not disadvantaged at all. Um, we, yeah, uh, I would frame it more of a a psychological phenomenon. So they they have had a lot of power. They have had a lot of um, hierarchical position and authority, and that is shifting. While slowly, it is shifting, and so the loss that they might experience um, also needs to be addressed to make more men advocates and get on board with the change that's happening. And when you look at leadership, senior leadership positions on boards, there's still a large proportion of men uh, at the top and there is this glass ceiling that occurs and that's one of the papers that is also being published in that group at the moment. Looking at uh, the quotas and targets that are coming out and trying to put women in more senior positions or enable pathways for them to get into those more senior positions in organisations. 
is fantastic, but the system isn't changing to support them in a way that keeps them and sustains them in those roles. So if you're a woman that's going into a role and you've got six other men in leadership roles and you're the only woman, how do you keep progressing, keep feeling as though you can pass the baton and empower other women? There's two sides of the coin. Some women that get to the top um, through the research that's been done um, have struggled to get there and have pushed their way up. And so through that struggle, there's almost this mentality that they don't then they expect that the other women could do it too because they've done it. So that's one part. The second part is they're leaving those roles once they get there because they don't feel supported. They don't feel encouraged. The KPIs aren't set up in a way that supports them. The culture's not set up in a way that supports them. And so part of the 100% project is looking at the system impacts, not just on quotas and targets or bias or training that occurs or the, the things that you can do to support diversity, equity, inclusion, but it's actually looking at what's underpinning the issues that are arising and how do you mitigate for some of those things. That's absolutely fascinating. So it's very relevant to what is going on um, overall in, in the corporate setting um, in in Australia and globally, I would I would imagine. Um, so you're looking at it systematically. And, and may I ask uh, which universities are involved? Is it a university-wide project or it, you mentioned it's voluntary. So... What is the history of it? Who formed it? I mean, I'm really curious to know how it's formed, who's involved, and where is it going? A woman named Frances, uh, she is a leader in at People Measures. She was the founder of it, and it's sort of grown beyond that. We now have our own board, and um, People Measures is a great contributor to the success or kind of ongoing sustainment of the not-for-profit organisation. We do have people from Deakin University and a lot of placement students from the Organisational Psychology Masters that's run out of Deakin. And so that's how I got involved. It was a placement opportunity. It, it drew on my curiosity. It sort of opened my eyes actually to a lot of the issues that were going on around me that I hadn't really understood or sort of had we shut away from a little bit, was a bit ignorant of Um And that's also part of my privilege and my bias and experience. So having my eyes open to the types of system changes that are required and the sustainment and investment that organisations need to make to achieve success in these outcomes, because it's not an overnight thing that happens, um, was really curious. And so, yeah, placement students, people that are just friends and colleagues and have a shared passion for DEI, it's a really interesting group and mix of people. I have got a couple of questions. So... um the first thing is that, which is a minor question, is that uh, is anyone else from Uni Melbourne part of it or can people join up the 100% project? We would love more volunteers. Absolutely. Um, the more passionate people, we're trying to expand our group as well to be beyond organisational psychologists. We think there's real value in having men in the conversation, different marginalised groups, as we were talking about before. Um, that will only make it stronger and the research better. So Absolutely. Uh, again, get in contact and I can pass along the details. And second question that I wanted to ask was that what are some examples of the system's changes specifically for gender bias 
that could improve the system so that it is more supportive of uh, women leadership positioning and uh, also men feeling less of a loss and more of a support toward this slowly changing attitude. There's multiple things going through my head and so I'll try and distill them in a way that makes sense. Um, One of the other projects I didn't mention is also looking at male archetypes and media's influence on masculinity, how that impacts gender equity in sort of the workplace, in society, in groups and norms. And I think there is a broader societal play that needs to happen beyond organisations. And so I do think the way we start to represent masculinity and change the way that's represented from the, the breadwinner, the hero, to more of a a holistic, spectrum-driven character or archetype will help shape men in terms of the way that they feel they can resonate with different images and archetypes and therefore hopefully help a correlation with the positive impact on gender equity and leadership or in society. The second layer for me is around... We worked with a a bunch of financial organisations and that's where the G100 project is that you were talking about comes from. And the paper's being published, so I won't give everything away just yet. But what I will say is one of the things we looked at is a little bit of a play on Simon Sinek's work, starting with the why. Um, through the research with CEOs, what we what we unpacked was everyone's gained these biases throughout the span of their lifetime. By the time they get into the workforce, they're deeply ingrained philosophical beliefs, values, things that sit right beneath the surface that are often unconscious in nature um, and reinforced by different system factors. So when, when I say that, I mean KPIs, I mean targets, I mean um, cultural norms in an organisation, the way we work. You know, job sharing, for example, is really helpful to women returning to work after becoming a mum. But it's seen as almost a detriment to your career aspirations or projection so how do we change the way that works or the types of things that are in place around metrics, the why of bias and getting people to be really clear on why they have them, where they came from, when it started to sort of start to unpack some of that and unpick it and change it and again deal with the loss of changing a value, a vision, a belief, which is quite critical. Um and, and how do we start to rethink or reimagine a workplace? So I have this idea of imagine a workplace that was developed entirely by marginalised communities, by minority um, communities. What would it look like? Would they design it if they had no concept of what the workplace looked like and operated today? Because it was designed by men, for men. Women weren't part of the workforce at that stage. If we didn't have concept of that, what would an organisation look like that was designed entirely by people other than men? Would it change the structures, the norms, the values, the targets, the way job sharing is looked at, the way leadership is looked at? I personally am a proponent of compassionate leadership, by the way. I think um, it's it's the style that that I personally communicate with and... um, yeah, and yeah, it would be really amazing Once while you're mentioning it. I was imagining that if the organization, for example, an organization speaking about women and versus men or women and men, um, if an organization was completely set up by women, and I'm pretty sure there might be organizations out there in Australia globally that are like that, 
how would it look like? How would it be led? Or how, what is the culture in it? And how would it be different mm. uh, from a male-dominated organization or a typical organization, as you mentioned, mm-hmm. that has been traditionally built by men? Um, so, so about the 100 project, um, uh, are the outcomes of the research that is done either published just on the website? Is it communicated with the media? Is it published on um, like scientific journals? So, how do you guys um, how do you guys communicate the outcomes of your research with the broader audience? There's a few ways that that's done, Meadow, um, and it's a really great question. We have. With our placement students that we've had, their thesis is often centred around the topics that we're looking at. And so that is published eventually into a, as you know, that can take a while to get through the publication process, but that is published in journals. The alternate frame is a lot of white papers that are targeted for business audiences with clear recommendations that are evidence-based. And so that's not published in the literature per se or journal articles, but it is um, developed by evidence-based practitioners and then worked in with a partnership of an organisation to make sure that it's fit for their needs. And again, driven by a lot of customer research and qualitative data as well as quantitative. So it's not just numbers, it is stories and the human aspect of DEI. Oh, great. And if someone wanted to contribute to that research or get involved, they just email the organisation and then they'll let them know how to, how to get involved? Yeah, the website is a great resource. It does have all of the researchers' profiles on there. It has a podcast itself on there with different topics. Um, So definitely check that out. It also has um, a range of the different projects that have been published, as as you were talking about. So you can either email myself and I can connect you in with the group, or you can go to the website and there's a contact button. Great. And the website's name is? The 100% Project. The 100% Project. Thank you so much. and you also mentioned that uh, you have you have been studying in Master of Psychology. Was that correct? Yeah, org psych. Yes, org psych. And may I ask how it plays out in what you're doing right now? Obviously, you're very passionate about the Innovation Lab, the 100 percent project. Um, may I ask how that plays in that um, in all the activities that you're doing right now? I think it's a curiosity about people, behaviors, about mindsets. Um, change in general. There's so many social issues that are going on in the world, diversity, equity, and inclusion being one of them, sustainability being another. And when you boil it down, um, I was actually speaking to someone the other day who was very inspiring, and they sort of said, if you have a passion and a curiosity to learn something new, to get under the hood of something and, and play with it and experiment and challenge your own values beliefs, bias, philosophy of life, you can really apply that skill set anywhere. And so organisational psychology is about looking at people issues at the individual team and organisational level. And that's very applicable from an ethics perspective, from a an evidence-based perspective in all of the work that I do. But I do think what it's actually built through the placements and the coursework is more of a curiosity and hunger for more learning, (laughs) more insight into the broader issues that are at play and how I can actually make an impact on some of those things. And so my master's thesis is in sustainability, but it's talking about psychological capital, hope, optimism, resilience, and self-efficacy. And the study talks about the fact that the sum of its parts are better than one of those attributes alone. 
that is technically, if you apply that to diversity, equity, inclusion, you apply that to anything that's challenging society at the moment, it's really, I feel, the crux of how we overcome some of these challenges. If we have hope that our contribution can have a positive impact, we're optimistic about the future in that space, we have resilience to be able to pick ourselves up when we fail, as I talked about from an innovation perspective, and see that as a learning opportunity, and we have the confidence in our ability to actually act on something, to learn a new skill, to challenge our perspectives, we're unstoppable as a human race. But I think we so often forget that we can build the capability in those areas. We can build the capacity to be able to adapt and change, and we get so caught up on the now. We do. We are, we are, they call it short-termism. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I know something. (laughs) Um, Are you optimistic about future? Absolutely. I think the more of us that can get involved, have a play and experiment with different social issues and the role that we can play with our unique skill sets that we bring and experiences, I think the future could look very different to what it's painted out to be. I think so too. Anything else before we wrap up the talk for today? I just appreciate um, you inviting me on the podcast, Meadow. I really thank you for having me and I hope, if anything, that uh, the conversation today has inspired others to be curious about diversity, equity, inclusion, about innovation in the space and about getting involved and sharing their unique skill set to make a change. Thank you very much, Deacon. Thank you for listening. And please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast series. Please also reach out, let us know what you think and whether you'd like to contribute to Plus One podcast series.